them on Facebook for interviews and more. The Morning Drive on News Talk WVMT. Welcome back to The Morning Drive, everybody. Kurt and Anthony here. And joining us online now is the last Republican Speaker of the House, Walt Freed. Good morning, Walt. Good morning, Kurt and Anthony. Thanks for being on the show today. And uh, I got to tell you so much we want to talk with you about. I want to start with when I first got there in 2001, one of the first things we did was to elect a new speaker. And it was such an exciting time. Walt, uh, can you just give us some reflections when you think back to that time? You'd been you had been in the House for how many terms before you got elected as the last Republican speaker? Uh, it was three terms. I came in in uh, January 2003, elected in uh, um, 1993, and I was elected 1992 that November. Served uh, my freshman term and then uh, a term as minority whip and uh, a term as uh, the minority leader. So it occurred by the time you, you arrived and we became you know, the, the majority party in uh, 2001, Quite frankly, most of us had no experience in the House in leadership roles that really controlled the important things, whether it was committee assignments or budgets or how much we could spend. We were really feeling our way those first few months. And what what was the experience like for you to come in as Speaker? How surprising was it to you when Republicans won so many seats that year in 2000 that we were able to elect a Republican Speaker? Well, in hindsight, I think back, and uh, <laughs> I wasn't contested that term. We had so many seats in the House. I think it was 87. Michael Bohowski had been the, the Speaker of the House, a Democrat. He chose not to run, and the Democrats didn't put up a candidate against me. And I, I always thought there was some sneak agenda that was going to happen at the last minute. They'd have a candidate, and they'd take away my speakership. But it didn't work out that way. It, it, it went pretty smooth, and... Uh, um, we were already prepared with committee assignments, and uh, and we moved ahead. You know, but you know it was important. If you had a chain of Republican speakers, you would have been in leadership. You would have known more about setting up the budget. I got a lot of help from uh, Rich Westman, Representative Rich Westman, who had been there a long time and had been in a Republican majority, and provided quite a bit of assistance. But uh, you know, going into this, a lot of us said, well. What can we do? You know, you know, can we? You know, we didn't really realize the Democrats when they had a problem with the whole health care issues and things that you're talking about even this morning with Dr. Smith. You know, they had so many people that wanted to be on the health care committees. They just, you know, divided them up and created a, a brand new health care committee. You know, we never really thought of that because we didn't have that kind of experience going into this. Now, Walt, your first term as Speaker of the House, it was divided government because. Uh... Uh, Howard Dean was was still it was his last term as governor. Absolutely right. It was uh, Governor Dean's last term, and the Senate uh, was uh, Senator Shumlin was the president pro tem of the Senate at that time. So only the House was uh, uh, a Republican body there. And and Walt, can you talk about? I remember I was on government operations that first term, and of course every ten years is reapportionment. And can you talk about the process a little bit? What we faced that year because. It's not often that you have reapportionment come up when there's divided government. And I remember that year being, they sort of violated not not a written rule, but an unwritten rule, which is the Senate deals with the Senate and the House deals with the House. And the Senate started kind of delving into on the House side, and it became kind of a free-for-all a little bit. Well, it did. 
And they have Governor Dean on their side, who basically said, if, if whatever you produce, if, uh, if it doesn't meet my approval, you know, I'm going to veto it. Uh, and he would have the Senate to back him up on that. So the Senate did weigh in, and, of course, from the House perspective, we tried to weigh in on the Senate, I guess, in retaliation. But, you know, um, the House obviously wanted to structure, you know, the the districts more to our liking, and we did have a lot of Senate, uh, House Democrats who went to their Senate colleagues and said, hey, you know, don't let them reshape my district or don't let them redistrict it in that manner. So it, it was a bit of a free-for-all. And when you add to that, there's plenty of House members, House Republican members, who didn't want changes in their district either. They had it set up such that maybe they would be running unopposed, and they didn't want to, you know, to deviate from that. So it, it got to be... It was quite an experience, and again, the Republicans hadn't been in the majority last time redistricting was done, so therefore they had you know, a lot less experience controlling the process. Let's go to the phones. We've got a call for you. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Good morning. Uh, the Speaker of the House has recently brought impeachment proceedings against the Franklin County Sheriff for an incident that happened before he was duly elected by voters of Franklin County and which on an incident which they knew about. Do you think the Speaker has a legitimate reason for initiating this impeachment uh, for that against the Sheriff? You know, not being privy to it, and, uh, you know, it, it would be hard for me to, to judge that. You really have to be in the minutiae details and have good guidance from your own legal counsel that, the legislature has available to them. Normally, I would say if the voters are fully aware of these conditions prior to going to the polls, it's accepted that you know the, it's the voters' decision and probably shouldn't be contested by the legislature with a an impeachment process. But you know, if they're egregious enough, or if the voters didn't know it, then certainly it would warrant the investigation, but a lot of that would depend on legal advice provided by the Legislative Council. Now, Walt, um, can you talk a little bit uh, a bit about your, as you became Speaker, about your legislative team, the majority leader, uh, the, the, two, the two leaders that worked with you? And I just want to warn you before you say anything, Walt, that at least one of them is listening this morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, uh, going into it, um, we did, I mean, John Tracy was uh, the Democratic leader when I was Speaker. Uh, John LaBarge was the Republican leader, uh, the majority leader when I was Speaker. And we had a pretty good team, you know, even in the appointments I felt that I made for the uh, committees. I listened to a lot of my committee chairs who were really directing the legislation that was going on in the House at that time. They also made up a very important part of that team. Uh, it, it wasn't just here top-down, one-size-fits-all. Um, I didn't have an opinion on every topic and every committee that was going on. I truly relied on the people that I appointed to, uh, to do that job. And, uh, of course, you had Connie Houston from Virgins. That's absolutely right. She was the assistant leader at that time. Um. And I hope she's out there listening. She is. She is. <laughs> there may be others, too, of the leadership team. And then actually, when you speak about John Tracy, now, two years later, unfortunately, for many of us, but the Republicans lost a number of seats. And I think when we went back in 2000, 
2003, after the 2002 elections, it was almost even, wasn't it? 75, 75, or very close. We lost a number of seats. It was six, uh, 69 Democrats, 74 Republicans. We didn't have a majority. Majority would have been 75, or at least tied. And we had 74 Republicans, and then there were uh, the progressives, I think, were maybe four progressives and three independents. So um, when the when the progressives, they all threw in their votes with John Tracy and, uh, and the Democrats, uh, they really equaled the number that the Republicans had. So the swing there was um, the, the uh, independent votes. But in the end, I, I think I came out of that race with about 86, 87 votes. Yeah, yeah, and even though it was just about dead even when, as you said, you mentioned, you moved the progressives into the Democratic column for John Tracy, you still won by 10 or 12 votes or whatever it was. That's correct. Now, um, yeah, we're going to take a real quick break, and then we're going to continue the conversation. Listen the way you want. Now, we return on The Morning Drive. News Talk WVMT. Welcome back to The Morning Drive, everybody. Kurt and Anthony here, and we're... Continuing our discussion now with former Republican Speaker of the House, Walt Freed, the last Republican Speaker of the House. He was in the legislature in the House in the 1990s and Speaker of the House from 2001 to 2005. Uh, Walt, now the second term you were Speaker, you had a new governor, Jim Douglas. How different did things become now that you had Jim Douglas as governor? You still had to still had to deal with a Democratic Senate, but how did things change when Jim Douglas came in as opposed to dealing with Howard Dean is governor. Uh, for one, Jim Douglas was there a lot more often than Howard Dean. You got to remember Howard Dean was campaigning for the presidency right. about that time, and we used to joke that he was seldom seldom around in the building. But um, having Governor Douglas there uh, was helpful in that he could help with the agenda. He could, you know, we didn't have the veto threats that we had with uh, Governor Dean, so it was easier to have a more bipartisan discussion, I think, with the Senate over the agenda. And we had Senator Welch, who I worked very well with, uh, was the, the leader of the, the Senate Democrats. He was the president pro tem at that time. And we got, you know, by that time, I think we got a chance to work on uh, a more diverse agenda. It happened, you know, with the property tax, the statewide property tax had already been instituted in 97. And uh, by then we were trying to moderate or change some of the things. We did permit reform. There were a lot of topics that came up. And this was at the same time that we were in a, the post-dot-com bubble burst, and we were in a recession in 2001. So there were, you know, there were really strains on state government, but I thought that uh, we were able to work well together, and having Governor Douglas here was very helpful. Now, having said that, you know, the governor came in with his own agenda. He, he had an agenda that he wanted to do statewide, and we had various House members who had been there now for some time and uh, and now were leaders of committees, and they had their own agendas, you know, whether it was taxation or permits or health care, and they didn't always see eye to eye at times. We had to work out those differences, too. What do you think was the, what was one of the more uh, contentious issues that you that you had to deal with or one of the more problematic issues that you had to deal with as Speaker of the House in those four years? Taxes were still a big thing at that time. Um, you know, the the Bush tax cuts were going into effect, or they passed, and that, that would affect. We were tied to the federal tax rate at that time. Uh, unfortunately, we decoupled. That was a mistake I take blame for. We really never should have decoupled. 
because it led to problems, you know, farther down the road. It led to too many opportunities to raise Vermont's taxes, I think, by, you know, later legislatures. But uh, uh, at, at the time, it would have reduced revenues for Vermont. We, we would have had to adjust our, our rate. And so dealing with tax issues, income tax, the property tax issue, statewide property tax issue was a, a big issue. You know, it affected, like in your area, uh, my, my last year, the, the TIF, Tax Incentive Financing District, for, for Colchester, was passed and uh, and you know I was I had a lot of misgivings about it. Uh, George Cross lobbied me quite a bit about it, and we let it through. In hindsight, I'm not sure that that was a smart move because it it kind of set up one town against another. Even in light of the whole uh, Act 60 statewide property tax thing that had been enacted a few years before, so that and uh, perennial the health care issues and the Act 250 issues were still ongoing. Talk a little bit about, um, I think, in contrast to what we're seeing now, where one party has such a super majority. Um, talk about your decision-making process when you had, you know, literally the body in front of you was almost split evenly right down the middle. I mean, it was tough. You really had to count noses any day that you're going to take a, a crucial vote. And I left that job to, you know, the, the leadership, uh, John and Connie were very helpful in that, but you really had to know where your folks were, and so did the committee chairs that were voting bills out. And you know, that was, it was tough for us with uh, tight numbers. It was tough for Speaker Obahowski his last term when they had about 15 blue dog Democrats, and they'd bring bills out of Democrat committees and bring them to the House floor and find out they didn't have the votes for them, and they'd end up having to take them back to committee. Uh, we didn't. We weren't plagued with that as much, but it was still a challenge to to make sure that you had the votes there in order to move your agenda. Do you think, though, that that having having that uh, body that had more of a balance, it is uh, more productive? Or I mean, it just seems to me like right now, it, you know, if you don't agree with what's going on, <laughs> hang on to your hat. Yeah, I wouldn't say so much that it would be more of a balance. I would have rather had. Um, a few more Republicans in my caucus that second term. But uh, at the same time, it was having a balance and working with the, the Senate. And you just knew that you just couldn't push something through the House. And you see that in Washington today. The House Republicans are willing to just push anything through the House knowing that it's not going to pass in the Senate. You know, we, we didn't have the luxury of time to do that. We had to focus on things that we could get done and uh, not things that were wish list things that the Senate's just going to hang up on the wall. And so it did take not only myself working with the, the Senate leadership, the Democratic leadership in the Senate, but it took our committee chairs working with their counterparts in the Senate to say, hey, what's the art of the doable? Right. And in that 2003 to 2005 period, uh, you're, you are very right, Walt, as I know as one of the members there. Every vote, because of the split in the legislature, it seemed like every vote was within one or two votes almost every single time. It, it was. <laughs> and uh, now, Walt, um, then after 2005, what, uh, thinking back to that, what made you decide not to run for another term and not uh, you know, run and therefore give up the speakership? Uh, by that second term and even that, that speaker's race against John Tracy, which was time-consuming and um, and. and I've always considered John a very good friend of mine, even before and after that race. Um, 
But the whole process, the whole 12 years, consumed a lot of time. It ate up a lot of time, and to, especially the Speaker's office the last four years. Uh, although it was a part-time legislature, the Speaker's office operated year-round. You were, you know, it was important to go meet people. You'd have constituencies. I can remember Michael Bahowski, the former Speaker, called me up. I think it was in the middle of summer. He wanted me to come over to his hometown, come over to Bells Falls. Something was going on over there. They wanted support from the legislature. And um, and Mike called me up and said, "Hey, would you would you come over here and meet with these people?" And uh, you know, he he truly understood the process of saying, "Hey, can you help get us some support?" You know, so it, it really it really was almost a full time job. You know, day and night, seven days a week. So the burnout rate is is pretty quick. <laughs> well, uh, Walt Reed, former Vermont Speaker of the House for four years in the early part of the, the well, two thousand one to two thousand five. We're going to hear more from Walt after the break, and we're going to talk to him about his thoughts on uh, what's going on now in Montpelier and some thoughts on national politics as well. So keep it right here. We're going to check in with Fox. This is the Morning Drive on FM 96.3 AM 620. News Talk WVMT. Welcome back to the Morning Drive, everybody. Kurt and Anthony here, continuing our discussion with former former Republican Speaker of the House, the last Republican Speaker of the House from 2001 to 2005. He and he was the first Republican Speaker at that time in 16 years, and of course, as I said, the last one. Um, Walt, I have to tell you, when you when you decided not to seek reelection after 2005, I always thought that you would come back and run for something else. Whether oh, yeah. it be governor or or something else, did you ever uh, think about running for another office after you after you left the legislature? I might have complete, uh, contemplated it, uh, but at, at the same time, Governor Douglas was just starting his career as governor. Uh, that avenue wasn't open. Um, I thought about the, the my Senate district as a possibility, but by that time, I had already served two terms as speaker, and it just it wasn't fun. It started to feel more like work, you know, a lot of work. And at the same time, I was still gainfully employed, running my own business. So it, uh, um, it, it really didn't. I didn't really see the opportunities that I'd wanted to take advantage of. I just, I was, I always was sure that we were going that Walt would be back <laughs> running for elective office. <laughs> now, uh, of course, it's not too late, Walt. You know, we've got a president that's eighty years old, and well, we, we've got uh, a lot of others that are up in their eighties. Yeah, and and. Fairness to your listeners, you know, uh, I've been a Florida resident, as many of my former colleagues in uh, the Vermont legislature are also Florida residents, but I've been a Florida resident, my wife and I, for over a decade now. So, you know, we're active in politics in Florida, and uh, we'd like to come back and visit here in Vermont in in the summertime. We still have our home that we've been in for well over 40 years, but, uh, but, I think Vermont politics has passed me by at this point. And uh, t- taxes are a little bit, a uh, little bit better in Florida. Uh, a lot better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, Walt, let's talk a little bit about what you um, here in Vermont. Why do you think it is that the Republican Party? Because I mean, I know you're still here, and you have your house down in Dorset, and you're still here, a good part of the year, a good chunk of the year. What? Um, why do you think it is that since then, those two terms when we had. U.S. Speaker, 
that the Republicans seem to have steadily gone down in numbers. A couple of times it stayed the same. We might have picked up a couple, three, two or three seats. But more or less since then, the Republicans have been in a very distinct minority. Why do you think that is? Uh, it's simple. It's demographics. You know, the voters can vote with their feet and not just with their with their dollars. Uh, and, and people move about. And you've had an influx, a change in population, um, where you've had more liberal voters move into the state. They, you know, they like the makeup or they like perhaps what's going on in the agenda. And they move here and carry their politics with them. At the same time, you know, voters move out of the state and they move elsewhere. You know, I'll use my Florida as an example. We've had four million new residents move in, in the, since the time that I moved there. Four million in the past decade. And, you know, if you think about it, that's a population of seven Vermonts. You know, and Florida just in the past four years has gone from a blue state or maybe a purple. It's gone from a Democrat state by way of party registration to now the Republicans have a predominant, significant lead in party registrations. That's just people moving, you know, voting with their feet and choosing to go elsewhere. And that's what Republicans have faced as a problem in Vermont, you know, that many Republicans like myself have moved out, you know, want a different politics, and many uh, Democrats or progressives have moved into the state. So the numbers, and, you know, I've seen that myself where I live, obviously, and Sure, Anthony's seen it to where he lives. Uh, it that does just continue, and it's uh, tough to turn things around in Vermont when those type of numbers keep changing the way they are. And and it's also hard that more and more we're there's no middle ground. There's you know the 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 Democrats are hard left, or the progressives are hard left, and the, and the Republicans are hard right, and the moderates in the middle, and both parties are being squeezed out. You know, 25 years ago when you had you could talk about blue dog Democrats who are much more moderate or even conservative Democrats. Um, they're squeezed out of the legislature in the same way that uh, you know moderate Republicans, you know, are are squeezed out both at the state level and at the national level. Well, and that's kind of what I was referencing when I was talking about when you had a body that was more balanced. Uh, it kind of forced the middle to join to get anything done, and now it seems like everything is so polarized. <laughs> There is no middle ground, so it's 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 you know my way or the highway, uh, and, and it seems counterproductive long in the long term. Very much so. We were you know we always had to rely on the swing voters, and those were probably the more moderate uh, voters in each party in order to move any agenda. Uh, in Congress today, at the national level, neither side seems to be willing to admit that. You know, you can ask yourself why, what causes that. Truth matters. There's good and bad. There's what we call sunshine laws or open meeting laws, or you know the the internet itself. But everything that a legislator does, you know, wherever they go, both at the state level and national level, within five minutes it's broadcast on the internet to all their constituencies. So if they try to sit down and talk with the other side and negotiate something in the middle, you know, they get ostracized. Uh, but you know, during my time period, I, I met. I, when I was assistantly or minority leader, I met with my counterpart, uh, Paul Silo, once a week. You know, most people never knew that, but for uh, I think it's four years, we'd meet once a week during the session, you know, at the Tuesday morning for coffee, you know, in, in Montpelier, and just say, hey, what are we doing this week? You know, what do we agree on? What do we disagree on? We're, what's in the middle here that we want to get done? So we, you know, if you had 
the internet following us every five minutes, you know, that wouldn't have happened. Well, People would be leaning over our shoulders saying, hey, don't even talk about that. I think, th- what do you think the breakdown is? Because I personally, I like the idea that, that opposing viewpoints sit down once a week so we can get something done. Um, where do you think the shift has come from where, you know, the fact that, that people, people get yelled at for, for wanting to have open communication and, and conversation with people they disagree with? Where do you think that whole thing has started? Because I think it's a positive thing that you sat with him every week. It was, and, and also I met quite a bit with uh, uh, Senator Welch at that time, um, in a, or, or during my time period as Speaker. But, you know, in part, if, if we were doing that today, if people knew we were at the Coffee Cup restaurant every Tuesday morning at 7.30, you know, now they'd be there with, uh, with their iPhones and cameras, you know, videotaping our conversation, and I'd have 15 phone calls you know, within an hour from my constituents saying, hey, you know, don't even consider doing that. You know, so when you, when you can't talk about what might be a middle point, what you're willing to concede, you can only talk about what you, what you want uh, and not what you're willing to give up, then it's hard to do any type of negotiation. So I guess what I'm saying, and now that I'm out of office, I can say there's probably a lot to be said for some smoke-filled rooms and some old-fashioned negotiation in order to get, you know, in order to get something accomplished. Yeah, I mean, just communication. Sometimes you need to do that. Yeah, you just got to sit down and and have a conversation, and I, I uh, it's very frustrating because you want transparency, but then, <laughs> then when you have transparency, everybody is so quick to judge. Then so it's like slow down. We're just having a conversation. We're just trying to see where we can find middle ground. Right, but if when you're a legislator, somebody knows that you're trying to find that middle ground, you know, they, they're going to go back. If they're opposed to what you're talking about, they're going to go right back to your district, call some influential people in that district who might not share your point of view and say, hey, get on the phone, call this person up. When you get a call from a constituent in Vermont, you get small districts there, you know, you, you take note of it. When you get a call from somebody across the state, you go, hey, they, they don't vote in my district, I don't care. But when they vote in your district, you get a call. And that's how the lobbying process works. So it's hard when they know the minute you start talking about some change that they don't like, they're going to make sure that there's people there to, to call you up and, uh, and urge you to do otherwise. Well, I want to get your thoughts uh, a little bit more on the situation in Vermont here. The legislature, the numbers as it is now, there's a supermajority in the legislature now. And your, your thoughts on how you personally handled vetoes when they came down. Right now, Governor Scott, of course, we have the situation, as you know, with a He's listed by the consult poll as the most popular governor in the United States at 76% approval. Um, had a smashing re-election win. At the same time, he's, he faces a legislature with super majorities in the House and the Senate, and they've overridden his vetoes uh, many times. All but one or two they couldn't overcome, and they didn't even have the vote then. How did you handle vetoes, and what do you think of the situation in Vermont uh, with these super majorities that Governor Scott faces, overriding his vetoes consistently? Uh, I, I don't. I don't recall having that much of a problem with vetoes during my speakership. It, it just doesn't stand out for me. Maybe there were, you know, some there, but uh, it doesn't come to mind. But. Um, you know, I think in dealing with it right now, when you have super majorities, that's where it's powerful. The governor's veto isn't going to stand when they want to get something done. And it does seem strange to me that the governor is so popular, and and yet Vermont elects such a one-sided, lopsided uh, legislature. 
you know, I, I can't reconcile the two of them to the point where I look back this past year and I see that Vermont, in effect, put in a carbon tax, you know, and, and I just kind of shake my head about that, saying, God, in a rural, unless you're, unless you're cutting your own wood on your own woodlot or something, uh, you know, you're going to be dependent on heating oil and propane, et cetera, uh, and, you, you know, having an extra fee put on it just doesn't make sense to me. I, it just doesn't compute well and actually to hear uh what what happened this year uh you know they blamed the fuel oil dealers for for uh this public outcry everybody heard from their constituents as you mentioned and they were upset and they they as opposed to saying we hear you they said well it's just because they spent money on advertising you don't know what you're talking about um, maybe that'll show up in the polls next time around. I don't know, but you're right. They just basically said to their constituency, trust me, you know, this is going to work out all right. We're going to collect all these fees from you, and then we're going to give it back in the way that we deem appropriate to lessen your bill. We'll give you some, you know, heating efficiencies or something, or we'll give, you know, low-income people some money to buy their fuel. But in essence, it just turns you on to a dependency of those people that are in power to say, trust us and depend on us you know, to get your heat cost out. Walt Freed, former Speaker of the House, last Republican Speaker of the House. If you have a question for Walt about uh, his time as Speaker or politics now, give us a call on the McKenzie Country Classic Hotline, 888-414-0303. Um, Walt, uh, uh, as your time as Speaker, um, what do you think about the, the polarization, well, you mentioned it, the polarization of politics. Uh, what do you think has the country so polarized as it is now? Uh, you know, I, I guess both sides set an agenda, and it's, you know, no compromise. It's a no compromise agenda, whether it's the Republicans, whether it's the Democrats, and, uh, and compromise is a, is a dirty word. And in government, I mean, you were always taught that uh, you never want to see how laws were made. It was like making sausage, a pretty messy process, and, uh, and, uh, and you wouldn't agree with it. But it does revolve around compromise, and I think we're at the stage where we have extremes with no compromise. I mean, you know, the the pro-life, pro-choice issue, I think, is going to be a big issue in the next election cycle, and there's hardly a pro-choice Republican, maybe two, left in all of Congress, where, you know, 30 years ago, a good number of the Republicans, close to, close to half, might have been uh, considered themselves pro-choice. And certainly, if you went back to the prior to Ronald Reagan or when Reagan was governor, the majority of Republicans were in some way pro-choice. So, you know, I think that these are going to lead to election issues in the, in the next cycle and in future cycles. And you actually spoke on that issue, pro-choice versus pro-life, uh, at the 1996 convention. That's right. I was... I was probably the last Republican to offer an amendment to take the pro-life plank out of the Republican Party and make it neutral on it. That was in 96 when Bob Dole was running. Um, I offered the amendment on the platform committee. We ended up losing, but we got some concessions out of the platform committee at that time to acknowledge that you know the, the pro-life um, plank, or that at least acknowledged that there was a good many Republicans who were you know, serving their party and serving their country uh, and serving their constituents who were um, uh, pro-choice Republicans. And I know and there was I, a place for them in the party. And I know I went Today back there and, is none. Right. I went back and listened to your speech, and that was one of the points you made was that you both sides were really listened to. Each each side listened to each other. 
That's right. That's right. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, we'll be back with uh, Walt Freed right after this on The Morning Drive. This is a Bloomberg Money Minute. Dating apps are putting a higher price on finding love. The Wall Street Journal reports Match Group, which owns a fleet of dating apps, recently added a plan to Hinge with a monthly rate around $50, up from its previous high of $35, and is examining user interests in a plan for Tinder nearing $500 a month. Drugstore chain Rite Aid is reportedly headed for bankruptcy. Dow Jones says the store is preparing to file for Chapter 11 in the coming weeks. Rite Aid is facing more than a 1,000 lawsuits alleging it contributed to the opioid epidemic by oversupplying prescription painkillers. And discounts are making a comeback as consumers pinch pennies. With inflation and a lot of economic uncertainty, more of us are taking a pass when it comes to shelling out for shoes, appliances, and other non-essentials. According to surveys from NIQ, as of last month, about 30% of U.S. shoppers were buying whatever brand... Bakers, this is the way. This is The Morning Drive on News Talk WVMT. Welcome back to the Morning Drive, everybody. Continue our discussion now with uh, former Republican Speaker of the House, the last Republican Speaker of the House, Walt Freed. And uh, I, I certainly I came in as a as a member of the legislature just as Walt was becoming Speaker, and I was the only Republican member from Burlington, the only Republican from Burlington my whole time there. And, and about eleven, we had an eleven member delegation. Um, but it was a, it was a thrill coming in with Walt as speaker, and I learned a lot about politics from Walt as speaker. So, uh, Walt, I do want to ask you going back, to, and I want to then talk to you a little bit more about national politics. But one of the things that we saw in this Vermont session, all these bills, spending bills passed, overrides of the governor's veto, and at the same time, uh, the legislature, the majority, the supermajority, wanted to pass a bill, and they did pass it, but the governor vetoed it, and this is one they couldn't overcome but that doubled their pay. And essentially there seems to be legislators now in the supermajority who want the session, want the legislature to become more of their full-time careers. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a, a major change. I did follow that when it was going through the legislature, and that's a major change from bygone years where we had more of a push um, during the 90s, even the 80s. You know, we had more of a push to, to limit the length of the session. When you got into the terms of Ralph Wright as speaker, and a lot of the sessions were starting to run to May or June, and, uh, and a lot of the older members said, hey, you know, we should be out of here the first week of April. You know, it, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't stretch out so long. Um, and now you see the, the sessions are long, and the, the people that run for office are saying, hey, I want this to be my career. I want to make enough money off of this. Uh, so that I, I don't have to worry about doing something else and I at least want my health care covered or my child care covered, you know, a, a lot of these other issues that, that drive up the cost. And for a small state like Vermont, I just can't imagine that. You've got to remember, Vermont's got a population of about 670,000 uh, people. You know, that's an average county in Florida. <laughs> you know, we have five people elected in the county to, to run the county government. We, ten of our counties are way larger than the population of Vermont. You know, so, you know, Vermont just seems to be reinventing the wheel all the time, looking for something different that other places, other municipalities uh, already do so well that, uh, that they don't need a full-time legislature. All right, well, let's go to the phones. we got a call for you. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. 
Yes, good morning. First, boy, I'm glad I'm glad to hear you talk about the demographic change because I thought I was the only one here that, that was worried <laughs> about all these new people moving in. They're, they're not adding to the population. They're changing the population. They're replacing people that have had enough and left. And I'm of the opinion that we don't <laughs> I don't want these people moving in, but they're here anyway. But I'd like you to put to take out your crystal ball for a moment. And for the entire four years of the Trump administration, I mean, the revenue into state coffers was massive. You know, the budget, you know, the state was flush with cash, and that was due to economic activity, not federal dollars, which is what we have now. So, I mean, the people of Vermont rejected all that economic activity in exchange for basically welfare payments from the federal government to keep the state afloat. And that includes the governor. He prefers Biden and what's going on now over Trump. So, you know, with the inflation and the economy being what it is, what do you see Vermont as in five years? I think with the, they'll have a reduction, obviously a reduction, it has to be a reduction in the, the federal aggress that's going into state coffers, all that money that's coming in from the federal post-COVID, it was COVID-generated votes to spend money, and then after that, uh, whether it was the infrastructure or inflation reduction legislation, a lot of the small states, Vermont's one of those, there's a minimum floor in order to get enough votes in the Senate. You put a minimum floor on how much each state can get. So, you know, when you get the COVID relief money, I think Vermont got a couple of billion dollars compared to large states. They got probably 20 times per capita the amount of federal money. And that's easy to spend. It makes things look good. But uh, once you get rid of that, then you're going to have a lot tougher time, you know, raising the revenue, especially without raising uh, the tax rates. If you look back during the, the four years of the Trump administration, the one thing that the, the tax cut, and people bemoan the tax cut at the federal level, they call it the Trump tax cut, but the, the Trump tax cut actually raised uh, about uh, 50% more revenue than had been raised in, uh, in 2017 when it was enacted. I think the federal revenue then was about $3.4 trillion, and uh, four years later, the annual revenue was up to... $4.7 trillion, so it certainly wasn't a tax cut at the national level. Now, Walt, uh, this, uh, we're coming into, we just had the first debate of the 2024 presidential election last week, and of course, your governor down in Florida uh, was right there in the middle of the pack. Um, most people think that he did a, did a pretty good job and seems to be getting a little bounce out of that. What do you think of Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida? And uh, I know you mentioned about 4 million people moved into Florida and X amount of time that you talked about, um, he. But it's been a pretty close state. It's been considered a swing state in presidential elections for a long time, but yet DeSantis won by twenty percentage points. What's your thoughts on the Florida governor? Um, yeah, he he's done a great job in operating, running Florida. You know, uh, you've got a Republican Senate, you've got a Republican House, a Republican governor. Um, it, you know. Our taxes, I, I guess I look at it and say our taxes are minimal. Even our property taxes are minimal. We have a great college scholarship program for any Florida resident, which is absolutely wonderful. There's a few criteria you, you have to meet, which means good grades, community participation, and, uh, and you can have tuition free at any of the state colleges. There's a lot of things that are happening. 
You know, our electric rates are, are low. It's a competitive environment for business. We have a new tech community uh, building in Tampa and in Miami. So there's a lot going on. You know, one of the things that Governor DeSantis, I think, gets into trouble on is when he tries, when he competes on the national spotlight and either tries to out-Trump Trump or move to the far right of Trump, uh, sometimes it can be it can be challenging, you know, and it is for for a lot of candidates. So, uh, but as far as the the operation of uh, of what he's done in Florida, uh, I think he's done a great job. Do you think uh, that it will be a mistake if Republican voters nominate Donald Trump again to be the president? Do you think that will make it less likely that a Republican is in the White House uh, after twenty twenty four, or more likely? My personal belief, it's less likely. You know, as uh, some of us would argue, and even some of the Democrats, they, there's a lot of Democrats that want Trump to be the candidate because they think that Trump's about the only person that Joe Biden can beat. And, also, and he might be right there. I mean, Trump's favorabilities and Biden's favorabilities, neither one of them makes 50% nationally. So there's, there is a big gap there. You know, people are looking for somebody else in either party. Any candidate that you are supporting right now, or are you still kind of watching the... Field. You know, I'm, I'm watching the field. You know, I really haven't settled on any one candidate, but I think the, the, the important thing is, from the Republican perspective, they have to coalesce around a single candidate. You know, they have to come into agreement. I don't believe that that is Trump. There's way too much baggage there. You know, and age is also a factor, but I think that they have to come up with a new voice and settle on, uh, on, on somebody uh, that you know has a has yeah. a winning agenda, and that can actually reach out to those people in the middle. That has to, well, you have to bring in the moderates. Right, right. Walt Freed, thanks for being on the morning drive today, and we'll be back tomorrow right here on News Talk WVMT Burlington. From ABC News. I'm Sherry Preston. Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows fighting to move his election interference case from Fulton County, Georgia, to federal court. His attorneys will be at a hearing in Atlanta today, arguing that Meadows' role in actions taken after the 2020 election was simply because he was doing what he was told. Four other defendants are also seeking to move into federal court, where a trial jury would be drawn from more than Fulton County, which